All right, so I'm delighted to be joined today by uh, Phil Windley, the former CIO of the state of Utah, CT, uh, CTO of iMall, and a gentleman that I met back in the Python and Zoop days. I think you had flown a Cessna 310 over from the Bay Area. Is that right? Was it a 310? I remember it being, was it a dual? I can't remember. No, it wasn't a dual. It was a 210. A 210. Oh, Turbo yeah. 210, right. So... Yeah. A Turbo 210, which if I remember right, because I followed you carefully after we met, you sold to fund your next startup. And it was pain, It was emotionally painful for me to read that. <laughs> well, it actually is a little bit more complicated than that because my partner, Steve Fulling, actually wrecked the 210. And we used the insurance money to buy a um, Turbo Aero, which then we sold. Same, 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 same. Oh, yeah, with, if you're selling well, airplanes to uh, to fund a startup, that's a that's a that's a journey. Well, it, it supplies both capital and operational money because, as you know, maintaining a plane is not cheap. No, absolutely. Well, here's what I, what impressed me: the gesture to your potential venture friends should have been profound, <laughs> if particularly if any of them were private pilots. Yes, that's true. So I hope you got mileage out of the gesture. And thanks for joining us. Uh, it's great. Um, so I would love to just start. We're, we're going to go over a couple questions. We'd love to start with um, sort of a compare and contrast being the CIO of Utah, which is a big job, and the CTO of a startup, which is also a big job, but in different dimensions. I'd love to, our audience would love to hear about the sort of X, Y, and Z of those two experiences. Yeah, well, I, I think when we were talking before the show, you specifically mentioned iMall, which was my first startup. We had a couple of others since then. Um, and iMall was one of these just, um, I mean, it's a classic um, web story, you know, the, the whole how it happened when we were going. We started in 1994, so very early and we wanted to sell things because the word e-commerce didn't exist. So we wanted to sell things, right? And it was really just exploring. I mean, you know, I think later on you want to talk about cookies a little bit. And it turns out that there's a tie in there because everybody was trying to figure out how to use cookies to build shopping carts because nobody even knew how that could all work. Um, and so being a CTO, you know, that startup, and then we eventually sold it to Excite at Home for um, about half a billion dollars, which was, like I said, it was just this classic, you know, web fairy tale kind of startup story um, with, you know, lots of pain in the middle, which is always gets ignored. But, um, but you know, that, that experience of going from, you know, just me coding everything to having hundreds of developers and, you know, Lots of customers. I think we had about 50,000 merchants using our platform by the time we were done. That was a great experience. Um, and, you know, you, you ask, how does that impact or how does that contrast with being CIO for the state of Utah? Um, Governor Levitt asked me to be the state of the, the, the CIO for the state of Utah because I was um, the CTO of a Utah startup. And he was really interested in building Utah startup culture, which, you know, at this point, you know, 20 years on is, is phenomenal, right? Uh, unicorns, everything. So, so, uh, you know, that, that 
sale to Excite a Home is what interested the governor in asking me to be the CIO. Now, because it was an economic development play or because startups well, are agile and I want my state to be agile? More the latter. I mean, there certainly were economic development aspects to it. And I participated in, you know, lots of meetings in Silicon Valley and other places, you know, getting people to, to think about Utah as a startup uh, area. But, but really it was because I want to do digital transformation. You know, that, that word didn't really exist back in 2001. But that's, you know, if we were describing what the governor wanted today, that's the word we'd use, right? He wanted to transform how government worked using the web. And um, there there were a lot of successes. However, you know, because you specifically ask about IMAL, CTO of IMAL and CIO of the state of Utah together, I have to say that being CTO of a startup and growing it big did not prepare me in a lot of ways to be CIO for um, a state or, or even many, a, a large corporation, I would presume. And part of that is because when you're the CTO for a startup, um, yeah, you're making all the decisions. You're, you're, you're building everything from scratch, right? So you get to, you get to make all of the choices. Whereas when you become CIO of some large organization, especially, you know, something like a state, a lot of the decisions have been made. And so you're trying to undo them and people have a vested interest in them. I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell one story that, that maybe illustrates that a little bit. Um, so in, in Utah, at least, the CIO is an executive branch office, meaning it has no authority over the courts or the legislative branch. Right? Um, and... So we were, when I, when I became CIO, the state was using uh, the state.ut.us as its domain name, which is not very memorable, especially in 2001 when everybody was kind of wanted to be .com, right? That was, that was everybody wanted to be. And so it turns out that we already owned utah.gov, the domain name utah.gov. We already had it. I guess you don't own them. We, we already you know, had authority to use, I guess, from ICANN. From, and um, so I thought, well, gee, this is a no-brainer. We already have this. Let's start using utah.gov. Right? That, that sounds like a natural thing to do. It's not only shorter than state.ut.us, um, but it also means that we can, you know, unify email addresses, we can, um, when, when people go to a .gov um, address, they're assured that they're actually dealing with a government entity because only government entities in the U.S. can get .gov TLDs. And, and, you know, the state, I think we were using close to 200 .org domains for various things in the state. None of it was organized. So, so it felt like a no-brainer. Well, a couple of things that happened from that. One, I got uh, a call uh, from the president of the Senate who wanted a meeting. So I go and meet with the president of the Senate and he says, tell me about this Utah.gov thing. And, and you know, he was, he was desperately trying to understand what it all meant because, you know, 2001, the whole, the whole. No, the, the, the internet's, the internet's poker chips. I totally get it. Yeah. And it was, and it was new. And what does this mean? And 
I tried to explain to him, you know, why it was a good marketing strategy and why it was better for security and why it would mean that we could create government services that were more, you know, holistic rather than siloed by eight. I mean, I went through the whole spiel. He says, okay, I understand all of that. But, but what I, what I want to know is why do we have to be Utah.gov? That means governor. I want to be Utah.ledge because we're the legislature. And I said, well, you know, because no, I mean, you're right. You're, you, he's not a techie. He, yeah. does, he doesn't understand that, you know, some techie put together this hierarchy of domain names. And of course, you know, gov doesn't mean governor. It means government. But nevertheless, you know, that was his problem with it related to the same thing. The um, we moved all of the domain names so that all 22,000 state employees had a utah.gov email address. So you made it through that meeting. Oh, I made it through the meeting. Yeah, not, not necessarily through the next two years, but I made it through. The <laughs> um, and, and so we, we were giving all 22,000 state employees a utah.gov email address. Well, the you know, the, I, I had the, the executive director of the Department of Transportation meeting with the governor saying how much their employees loved the u.org domain name and they wanted their email addresses to have u. in it. And the, the executive director of uh, Department of Environmental Quality, essentially EPA at the state level, um, she wanted every permutation of her name as an email address that forwarded to her so that no one could possibly mistakenly send email meant for her to some, I mean, these are the kinds of things you deal with, right? And I was completely unprepared for that as a CTO who had built this company from scratch and, you know, made or at least been involved in all of the big decisions. And it, it was, it was a, it was a very big culture shock. So, so who succeeds at those jobs? And, well, what is, and what does success look like? Because as a citizen who has heard sort of versions of this story, I'm yeah. frustrated as all get out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think for one thing, people who succeed at those jobs are people who have been in them before. So, so you know, the, the learning experience, you know, it's the, the saying goes that um, good decisions come from experience and experience right. comes from bad decisions. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so, you know, one of the, one of the things I learned, which has served me well ever since I was CIO, is the power of what in the state we called convening authority. When you work for the office of the governor, you can pretty much call up almost anybody and they will take a meeting with you. Um, and that convening authority, I didn't appreciate it at the time, how much power there was in simply making people meet. And and so, you know, those are the kinds of things you learn. And, you know, some people learn them too late. You know, I, I probably did, at least for that job, but it helped me in, in other jobs. But I think you have to be, um, you have to be a little bit um, more, to, to put it kindly, I think you have to be a little bit more sympathetic to the feelings of the people who are already there. Um, you know, they're, they've got a vested interest in decisions that have already been made and, they're trying their best to, to move forward. Uh, and in a world that, you know, like the president of the Senate is completely foreign to him, you know, he really doesn't understand. You know, one of the successes we had that I thought was that, that I, that I still, um, you know, enjoy to this day because I use it once a year when I renew my business was um, the um, 
one-stop business portal. So, so the idea was, you know, rather than making people remember what agency does what, let's think about life experiences and then just put something together that, you know, reduces the agency boundary so that you can go in and say, okay, I want to start a business in Utah. So I need to get a license. I need to, you know, register the business. I need all of these things. Let's make it so that you can just do that in one stop portal to get your business going. And, you know, it, it still exists. And so that was, that was one of the things that I thought, no, that's no, it's, it's the great ancestor of natural language processing. I want to start a business. Okay, there's seven agencies, but we're going to hide that from you. Yeah, so, so it's you know it's the kind of thing that I think is digital transformation. No, totally, totally. Because otherwise, you're going to miss one, and then you're going to get a nasty gram and get a lean on your business all because yeah. you didn't know how to do kung fu with the government. So that's, yeah. So and that so after I'm all. Um, Refresh my memory, because I actually think there was something related to Twilio uh, on that next startup. It had a grand vision, but it's escaping me now. Yeah, well, I mean, after IMAL, I went back to BYU. Um, I, I've been a professor at BYU on and off through all of these years, and so that's kind of been my home. And um, then in 2008, we started a company called Kinetics, which was about putting APIs together. We started it with this idea of augmenting the web, meaning that we would let people build apps that changed web pages around, which was fun and cool. But something happened um, the um, the next year, right? 2007 is when we started in 2008, this thing came along and everybody forgot about the web and went gaga for mobile. And so we had to completely retransform the business. But yeah, we were using uh, APIs like Twilio and other things to, to pull all of that together. So wow. Crazy, crazy. The um, so let's take a little turn. Um, in that blog post, you you mentioned that um, lives are mediated by digital systems that are that are not ours. Mm -hmm. And as a society, so how can we manage these systems, or can we not? Yeah. Well, so I I call these administrative systems. And so if you're building a website. Uh, like I'm like we built or kinetics or anything else, right? One of the things you have to do is you have to build an identity system or, or at least buy one and use it. You have to have to be able to identify customers and partners and other things. Um, and businesses build these systems to administer their business. And you and I get put in these administrative systems and we are administered just like every other part of the business. Um, so, so that's kind of the digital world. Contrast that to the, the physical world. Right? When you go to a restaurant, you aren't administered by the restaurant. You aren't part of some restaurant system that sees you as something that they have to manage. You're just there in the restaurant. Um, now, you know, there are administrative systems. They, they clearly are going to have probably some reservation system and you know, all you know, keep track of the tables, all of those things, but you're not part of it. And the reason it happens online, of course, is because we're not there. We're not embodied in, in, in the digital world like we are in the physical world. So, you know, your question about these administrative systems, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that the digital realm that we have built to date does not give does not give people individuals a place to stand right we are essentially we only exist as ghosts 
within the separate administrative systems of the various places we visit online. So, so to, to a large extent, the only things that really exist online are the businesses that we all use. Uh, and, you know, this is, you know, we could get technical and talk about client server and cookies and all of this, but, but never, regardless of all of the technological reasons for it, that is the world we live in right now. And so our digital lives are more or less intermediated completely by these digital systems, by the software system, uh, even to the point where we think of, you know, our friendships online being intermediated by something like Facebook. Um, and, you know, of course, we can send email back and forth to each other like we did to set this up. And that works great. But but it's not But email is just one aspect. What Facebook's trying to do, how well they succeed, of course, we can, we can have a completely different podcast about what they're trying to do is create an environment where you can be with your friends. And of course, they're doing that to sell to show you ads. They want to sell the ads to people. Right? I mean, that's the business model. And there's no no great aha in that. But the point is, is that you are you are only friends in Facebook to the extent that Facebook allows you to be friends. That the extent of your relationship is defined by Facebook and their administrative system, and they, of course, designed that administrative system for their own purposes. They, they, they totally, totally. Not, I mean, you know, all, what, the motives are immaterial. The the result is still the same. So. Um... This ties into a bunch of previous podcasts. So let me, let me antagonize some guests that were here and maybe we'll, we'll circle them back again. So I agree. But Facebook, so the, the, the sort of cliche is then, um, turn Facebook in and get a complete refund. <laughs> At some point, way back when, during the I'm all days, we made a trade. The internet wants to be free. You remember this. Oh, yeah. Don't yeah. constrain my info. Like, uh, you know, I forget what it, they called it, but Microsoft had a, no, we're going to put the internet in a Microsoft can. Mm-hmm. They had that sort of private network. Maybe it was even MSN. The v- version 0.1 of MSN was a private network you dialed into and you had special tools and it was a constrained ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. And we said, we well, don't want that. We want free. Well, and- Exactly, CompuServe, and so that those walled gardens were no bueno anymore. So, so this comes back to this sort of fundamental surveillance capitalism. There seem to be two models: surveillance capitalism and the Wall Street Journal. And there's Death Valley in between. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I think um, if you 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 have mentioned the phrase surveillance capitalism several times, which of course is um, Shoshana Zerbaf's, um book, right? Um, that's, that was, that's her, that's the title of the book. And it's a great book. Um, in, in fact, her writing is just phenomenal. It, it, I, I found myself wanting to pick up the book just because I wanted to read what turn of phrase she would have next. So, so I highly recommend that book. Um, yeah. On the other hand, um, I don't, I'm not sure it goes far enough um, in, in terms of its um, remedy, so to speak. Um, there's a, and Cory Doctorow, who you probably know, has, has another book 
called How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism. I, what, I did not know that. I need to, because that's, that's sort of what this is all about. The, yeah. the businesses will not change their ways until they've got a better way, a more profitable way. Yeah. And so Corey's answer is, well, acknowledging the, um, the, the problems that Zubak um, enumerates in her book, um, Corey has a slightly different take on how we ought to approach it. And, you know, I think it's hard, but not impossible. He references uh, Larry Lessig's um, four forces uh, that, that regulate lives. Uh, Lessig said that we're regulated by law, that's legal, code, that's technologically possible. And he means code in a very general way, right? Not just software, but the technology, more or less. Norms, what society will find acceptable, and finally markets, what, what's profitable. And so if you, if you look at the idea of surveillance capitalism, you can take all of those, all four of those, and apply them to this problem. And you know, one of the biggest ones that Corey talks about a lot is the idea of using um, antitrust laws in order to, to break up big tech, and certainly to keep big tech from getting any bigger than it already is. That, that that kind of uh, decentralization, if you will, would go a long way towards righting the wrongs of surveillance capitalism. So, men, so much. But, of it, what but is it a fun- is it yeah. is it a function of the size of surveillance capitalism, or is it the nature that really causes our problems? Well, and I think that's that is Corey's argument that it does have a lot to do with the size. So so Shopify, if I buy my coffee beans from a Shopify-powered roaster and mm-hmm. they're tracking 5,000 of us, they're not aggregating it into – but they, they may recommend a brewer or whatever else. They're, they're not a danger. But if you put $5 billion on Facebook, that's when it becomes a danger. That's the sort of sum of it, yes? I, I, think, that's, I think that's the sum of it. And that's, that's because a lot of the – I mean, a lot of what we hate about it is that very – that very idea. And, you know, if I, if I could go a little bit further, and I don't know that Corey's making this argument, but I would make this argument. And that is that, um, it, you know, we haven't talked at all about self-sovereign identity, which is a thing I've been involved in for the last, you know, five years, very, very heavily. And of course, we, again, there could do a whole different podcast on just self-sovereign identity, but the point is that self-sovereign identity is meant to break us out of these administrative systems that we were talking about, that, that we um, – Yes, we yes, but doesn't the – there's a crowd out there with shiny hats that thinks that's a you know, universal ID and that that actually is actually going to make it easier to correlate behaviors across these uh, well, administrative it, systems. It depends on how it's built and how it's governed, right? And, and I would argue that if you – you take a look at the best of the best, at the, the good examples of all of this. It prevents correlation. It gives you a path to minimal disclosure, and it can enhance privacy. Now, I say can, and I emphasize can because getting back to lesson, right? There's four forces, but it's just technology. You also have to have a governance. You also have to have social norms. 
we have to have regulations, but those are part where, where of does, Where does convenience fit in there, Phil? Because how many times does my family, not me, I'm a religious email password authentication person. Oh. How many times do people like email, uh, authenticate with Facebook? Bam. Sorry, you just joined the, whatever you're doing on that site, now, your workout site into the Borg. Back. Now Facebook now knows how many push-ups you do. Now we're circling back to why I brought self-sovereign identity up, right? And that has to do with the size. So if it's Shopify and a bunch of other people, and you're bringing a different relationship to each one of those and making it difficult to correlate, not impossible, making it difficult. And, and they're small, so they don't have the same kind of lobbying power. Now you can imagine a self-sovereign identity system being able to regain some of the privacy that we've lost because we create autonomy for ourselves. I said earlier that we only exist as ghosts within the administrative systems that these that these companies provide. Self-sovereign identity gives us the ability to be embodied online. Right? We now are we can now be peers with each other. We have a relationship with these companies that This we was keep. the promise of open ID six or seven, eight years ago. Yeah, with with some big differences, right? And and you know, we could go deep on that. But my point here is that. The, the danger to all of that, the, the thing that can derail all of that is four or five really big companies with lots of lobbying muscle who have wallets on the platforms they control and can essentially shut that out and make it so convenient that your family just wants to use Facebook or Apple to log in instead of saying, oh, well, I should, I should use this other thing. Now, to counter that, of course, there one of the key ideas of a self-sovereign identity system is consistent user experience. That, that, that part of the problem, part of the reason why people go to, well, I'm just going to use Apple is because it's convenient and, and it's consistent, right? I know what I'm going to get. And it's kind of like the McDonald's of identity. But it may not be the best meal, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to get a good meal, or at least edible meal, regardless, right? And the same thing's true, right? If, if, you, if, the, if the password experience, every site you go to, it's slightly different. And it's a different place. And the reset's different. And, you know, it's not a consistent user experience. It's not a good user experience. If we create a system that has consistent and good user experience and let people, and let people use it without, you know, kind of unfair interference from these big companies, then I think we have a chance to reclaim some of our autonomy online. So, so that's kind of a long way around to the idea of why does size matter? Right? Size matters because it gives them such an unfair advantage over any new, um, anything new that we want to do that we're really just locked in, right? That there's, it's almost impossible to get out of that dead end road that we're in. So. So I'm, uh, I agree 100%. Let me play devil's advocate because we're yeah. both entrepreneurs. Um, let's, so I'm all had 50,000 customers. Yeah, 50,000 merchants. 50,000 merchants. Um, and let's just, you could have been um, surveilling the, the consumers writ large and creating profiles and personas and audiences and segments. Um, and in all honesty, if, if it had been five years later, we probably would have been. So when right, right? It, wasn't, it wasn't it wasn't no. because we we had some moral 
you know, I totally get it. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. So now you have 500,000 merchants when, what is too big and, and where is the, am I wrong to feel a certain punitive component to the entrepreneur and the investors that, um, success is punished? You know, and as long as they weren't anti-competitive to get there, let's say they were yeah. Boy Scouts getting there, and all of a sudden one day I'm all reach seven hundred and thirty-two thousand merchants, which is one too many, yeah. and all of a sudden the the government wants to break you up. Well, clearly, as the CTO of I'm all, I would have been really unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't argue. Um, on the other hand, I think you also have to look at it and say, as a society. We have to figure out how we're going to live in this world, right? Are we going to create a digital world that we want to live in? And does that mean that some things might be construed as unfair? Maybe. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, Rockefeller and Carnegie didn't like the kind of constraints that were placed on them when antitrust was actually had some teeth back in, back in the early 20th century. Uh, I, I'm, I haven't read a lot about it. I'm sure they screamed to the heavens about how unfair this was. They, they, well, they yes, but the, the behavior I read, the auto, his autobiography, Standard yeah. Oil was bad, like bad, setting fire to other people's stuff. I don't think I am all did that very often. And so. No, and, and I don't necessarily want to cast stones um, you, you know, at the, at the current incumbents, I mean, heaven knows I, I use them, right? I mean, I'm, I'm an Apple fanboy. Yeah. But on, on the other hand, I mean, I think that there, there are plenty of people who would say that a lot of their actions are exactly the same. They may not be burning down, you know, refineries. Yeah. Refineries. yeah. It's not physical. It's all digital. But, you know, some of the behavior is just as anti-competitive. So... And this, we're gonna we're gonna definitely have a couple more installments, Phil, if you're game, because um, this is fun. You talked about the Senate president who wanted something dot ledge. Yeah, Utah dot ledge. If and this is so, and I'm with you that that the ease with which digitally transformative technologies gets into the population probably brings a government role. And I'm a, I'm relatively conservative, not completely, but so that like even saying that out loud, that might be the first time I've ever said that out loud, <laughs> but then we have legislators yeah. that want something dot ledge. That to me seems like a real problem. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I don't necessarily think that you know, having legislatures make lots of laws about all of this is the answer. Um, yeah. So what's the other force? We you they well, got four forces, right? We got markets. Markets got, didn't work because because that's what we're, that's what gate got us uh, here. So so you you know Doc Searles, right? mm-hmm. Doc Searles. Well, you're argued. quoting you're quoting a lot of people from my time. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Doc Searles' idea is the markets do work, right? The, what 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 we ought to do is just ignore all of this and go build something better. Like that's Doc's idea. And, you know, I think we could say, well, look, the last 10 years, that hasn't worked. Lots of people have been crushed. And 
I worry about that. But on the other hand, I just spent the last five years of my life trying to build a self-sovereign identity system, an ecosystem, not a company, but an ecosystem of companies to, to move this forward. And, you know, I'm optimistic that we're going to gain traction and that it's got the right set of features and technology and that it's, it's the right time to do this. Um, will it absolutely work? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like any entrepreneurial effort. You never really know. Um, but, but I do think that markets are a force we can bring to bear on this. Now, the other two that, that Lessig mentions are societal norms. And I think we're seeing some movement in societal norms. Yeah, the whole delete Facebook thing. Yeah, and how people think about privacy and, you know, what should I do? Apple's default or Apple's available, you know, sort of anonymization switches. Yeah, and and Apple's, you know, Apple's cashing in on for, And so, you know, I don't think we're going to see any of these, you know, big companies, you know, acting like saints 100% of the time, right? But, But Apple certainly is saying, oh, you know, this is this is a way we could make headway is getting in on this market. Now, are they going to do that by locking us all into the ecosystem, Apple ecosystem? I think that's their idea, right? So we could argue about you know what how well that's going to yeah. work. But there are this and, is and, the best jail. It's so comfortable. Yes, it's a great jail. <laughs> well, the 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 analogy I like to use is the current online world is like an amusement park. It's really nice, and we love it, and it's fun. It's not always fun, right? Sometimes it's hot and unbearable in ways that amusement parks can can be. But nevertheless, would you want to live your life in Disneyland? No. Disneyland's a place I want to go visit. I want to live my life as an autonomous human being that has agency and and, and can make my own choices. But that's the that's the, I don't want to only live the life that Facebook decides I can live or Apple decides I can live. I want to live the life that I choose to live. And you want to live the life you choose to live. So that, means- so that, that touches a, an, uh, one more subject and then we'll do a yeah. quick wrap. I want to talk a little bit about airplanes. Um, how many people realize that Facebook content algorithm is not allowing them the life they want to live? I don't think many people do. And so there's a, there's a, you can't solve a problem until you admit you have it kind of thing. Like, oh my God, yes. Whether, depending on where your bread is buttered, uh, Facebook is a haven for lefties or it's a haven for, you know, right wingers. Whichever, whichever kind of misinformation you hate, Facebook is a haven for it. (laughs) Exactly. And so it, it, the algorithm for stickiness is indistinguishable from uh, accident, you know, just editorial selection. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, that's, I, I think that is the insidious, that's one of the insidious things is the whole, um, the brain chemistry around uh, bias confirmation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't disagree. And like I said, I, I'm an Apple fanboy. I, you know, I have friends who are Android and, you know, if I thought that there was something besides Apple that would give me, you know, a good experience, I might choose to go there. But I like the Apple experience, right? Where did, you know, where did, wasn't Ubuntu and Canonical going to come up with a phone? Don't you remember that? I was looking forward to it. There have been lots of Linux phone ideas, I think. Yeah. You know, and I've got, um, I think there's a company called Clear that has a phone that's like that. I mean, there, there, are, there are various things like that, but they don't, 
don't ever deliver. I've, I've got a laptop that I have loaded different Linux distros on, you know, thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to move to one Linux. day, one yeah. day, oh, yeah. one day, but I don't. So I agree with you. I mean, you know, the, the amusement park is nice, right? That's, that's why I like that analogy better than yeah. the general analogy, because, you know, people love amusement parks. No, they yeah. around with Disneyland stickers on their cars, right? And so I agree that, that there's a, you've kind of got to show them a better way. Now, I think part of the approach to that is you don't ever take this on head on. So, so for example, where is self-sovereign identity seeing um, gains? Uh, financial industry, credit unions. I've got a blog post about you know the, the member pass credit union system. Why are credit unions doing that? Well, because credit unions are never going to use Facebook for their login system. You know, there's just there's too many reasons why why that's not going to happen. But yet they need a really good system that doesn't, you know, have them spending a minute and a half on the phone asking you about where you lived when you were 13 in order to figure no, out. No, right. Knowledge-based authentication. But, and, sure. And so, yeah. And so by by going to a self-sovereign identity system, they can solve those problems without having to buy into the identity ecosystem of a Facebook or an Apple or an Android or whatever. Um, the... Um, the uh, UK national health system is using self-sovereign identity, verifiable credentials for um, medical professionals to assert their, uh, their, their training and competence, their credentials. I mean, I'm overloading credential there, a credential about their medical credentials. Right. And um, you know, the COVID kind of accelerated that because all of a sudden they had, they had to move doctors around between hospitals. And, you know, the way they were doing it before, it would take two days to get, you know, to know that this doctor was really the doctor you thought they were. And it was just too much. And so they rolled out, um, you know, self-sovereign identity, verifiable credentials to, I think, 18 different hospitals to date. Um, you know, so, so, so those are the places that, that, that you can get traction and get people to understand the experience and think, Wow, this is this is kind of cool. I like how this works without having to take on Facebook and say, "Oh, Facebook is." You know, yeah, no, you're right. Your you're you're not going to break down the front wall of Facebook yeah. and out Facebook them. Yeah, find the places where those those companies aren't getting traction and get in there. Um, you know that said, you know the the recent Apple you know wallet announcements in iOS 15. I mean, you know they own the platform. They can make it really, really nice. Um, and I'm certain there will be a lot of states that will want to put their driver's license in an Apple wallet. I mean, uh, so, you know, it, you, you've got to, like I said, you got to, you got to use all four of Lessig's forces. Yeah. Just, I've got a couple books to read. This, this has been a great, yeah. a great source of uh, entries. I hope they're all available on Blinkist because I, I have so much to do. I need to Blinkist them. And then I read, oh, wow. I read the ones that pass through Blinkist. Yeah. So uh, I'd love to thank you very much, Phil. This is fantastic. I appreciate oh. your time. I know you're a busy guy, smart guy, and I'm grateful. Would love to maybe do this again later in the summer. Yeah, let's circle back. What are you flying today? I'm not flying anything. Oh my word! No. Are you, are you? Did you lose the itch, or are you just in between planes? Well, I haven't flown for a number of years, and I keep thinking, you know, I really ought to go get my medical done, and yeah, um, you know, and and at least rent some planes and have some fun, and 
I, I just haven't. So the last time I was out was actually just a couple of months ago with a friend of mine who's a private pilot, and it was just a lot of fun. It was it was it brought back so many good memories that it may, it gave me the itch again. So. Oh, well, fantastic. I'll be, I'll be, uh, sending you positive vibes and Zen for, uh, you know, a little airplane. Thanks, Rob. All right, Phil. This was fantastic. I, again, I'm grateful. Phil Winley, uh, CTO of IMAL, former CIO of the state of Utah and a, uh, master of identity topics, which we will be talking about again. Uh, audience, thanks you and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Rob. Awesome. That was great. Thank you kindly. Yeah. Um, no, you. Uh, yeah, you're you're a good interviewer. Fantastic so. conversation, and um, you know, if we ever met at a cocktail party, we would just go out on the on the veranda and and ignore everybody else. It'd be fascinating. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it was fun, and you know, we we kind of got into the whole how do you how do you break down surveillance capitalism, which I write a little bit about. But you know, the the people who really do that are, are people like Corey and Doc. You know, they're the ones who really think about that. You know, my I've more been coming in from the sides with the self-sovereign identity so no but it's the the identity is the the identity is the asset that it's all about yeah that's because right. that's that's what facebook's putting all this metadata on the i i cut my teeth in local media selling content management systems to newspapers and tv and radio and it is um nauseating to see where they are now because they oh, just yeah. They just keep pulling back on the stick thinking any minute now I'm going to come out of the stall and like <laughs> good analogy. They, they've, they've paved over the crash site and they're still pulling back on the stick. So uh, we just had a guy that runs public radio for New York and he's like, you know, we're still trying to figure it out. No, in fact, it's, it's worse. There's, there's cratering demand for local media. And what does that mean for, you know, are you going to put a new dump site in my county? I don't yeah. subscribe to my local newspaper anymore. I couldn't tell you if tomorrow they're going to dig a hole in my front yard and try to put trash in it. That is civic uh, recklessness on my part. Yeah. But the yeah. local newspaper sucks. It's an interesting problem because um, people, I think, you know, to, to continue our Facebook fashion, you know, people kind of think, well, Facebook's all the news I need. My neighbors will tell me if something's happening. But it's not the same as, you know, the, the reporter going to the local city council. No, investigative journalism. Yeah, no. Well, that, Facebook, people who think that Facebook is the news are the execs, are running for office. And, <laughs> right, that, that's why we have these problems in the first place. All right, Phil, I'll, I'll let you go. Thank you kindly. I really, really am not just, this isn't just blowing smoke. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I love talking with smart people. You're certainly one of them. I can't wait to do it again. I appreciate well, thanks, it. Thanks, Rob. I enjoyed okay. it too. Thanks, sir. Talk to you soon. Bye. Goodbye.